Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're going to be beginning there in verse 27. As we consider the passage before us this morning, we're going to really be looking at a conflict of two authorities. The temporal authority of man versus the eternal authority of God. And this idea of authority is one that I want us to be really focused on and thinking about as we examine Jesus Christ in conflict with the authorities, both political and religious, in Jerusalem And that's going to be not only a big idea for us this morning, but it's going to carry on through the next couple of chapters. We have Jesus in confrontation with the Jerusalem leaders, the rulers, the authorities. All of human history, tragically, can be thought of as man trying to take authority for himself and to take authority away from God. And we can view history as a quest for power, a quest for authority, and all of the strife and wars that have come about recorded in history are the sad tale of man's power thirst. But authority in itself is not wrong, and God does give authority, and there is to be authority in the world that we live in. But we see here Jesus as the one whom God has chosen to bring an end to the sinful authority of fallen man. So let's go ahead and read the text, at least the first part of it here this morning. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to the end of the chapter. You see the section title in the ESV is The Authority of Jesus Challenged. And that is a great title. So we're talking about Mark 11, 27 through 12, 12, questions of authority and Christ's authority or God's authority challenged or questioned here is the first part of the outline. Follow along in your Bibles. I'll read it out loud for the congregation. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You can see why I enjoyed my job so much this week, having a passage like this to be able to immerse myself in, to be able to meditate on and to let it sink into my heart. Here you see a really fascinating exchange between the authority of Jesus Christ and the authority of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, as it says there in verse 27. Now, in order to understand this section, of course, you have to read it in its context. And so allow me to remind you of what we looked at last week, previously in chapter 11, where Jesus does some things that are asserting his authority in the temple. You could kind of say that Jesus has taken up residence in the temple for this feast of Passover 
He's taking charge of the temple. And so those who are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, these are the temple authorities, they would naturally be expected to ask that question. By what authority are you marching in here and taking over and running the show? Where are the authorities here? So back in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 11, when they came into Jerusalem the day after Palm Sunday, as it is known, we see that Jesus entered the temple in verse 15, that he cleared out, he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And then he takes his seat in the temple and is teaching the people, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And so this is a challenge to the authority of those who were in charge of the temple. The most holy, the most significant site on earth for the worship of God in that time, in that day. And so Jesus, he's teaching in the temple and he's teaching from the Old Testament prophets. As we pointed out last week that when Jesus says, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all the nations, he's getting that from the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah 56, 7, where God promises the salvation of the nations, and he says he's going to bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So Jesus not only has the authority, he's taking the authority to cast out the money changers, but then he's taking the authority to teach about why he is doing these actions. And also quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7, a very insightful passage to the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple that Jeremiah prophesied shortly before the destruction of Solomon's temple. Jesus is prophesying shortly before the destruction of Herod's temple and they both see the same problems happening in the temple. And so Jeremiah had said, speaking the words of the Lord, the words of Jesus Christ before he became a human being, when he was with God as the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So the authoritative teaching, the violent authority of casting out those who were making God's house a house of merchandise instead of a place of prayer and worship. The authorities come to Jesus now then, of course, and they find him in the temple and they say, by what authority are you doing this? Who gave you this authority? And implied in that question is, we're the authorities and we have not authorized you to do these things, and so why are you doing this? They are definitely challenging his authority. Jesus' reply is, of course, masterful. I love the way that Jesus Christ handles this situation. Of course, he knew that this question was going to be the issue between him and the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. He knew that when he went into the temple and took the authority to act in this way, that this was going to cause this conflict with the authorities, the temple authorities, the temple rulers. And so he was ready with the perfect reply. He doesn't answer their question. He says, I'll make you a deal. 
You answer my question, and then I will answer your question. And this, of course, gives us a lot of insight into many aspects of human behavior, that when you're asked a question, what is happening is, is that someone is trying to determine the course of the conversation. Questions are a great way to set the course of a conversation. And Jesus here is not necessarily going to give the temple authorities the right to direct the conversation. You see, all conversation is negotiated. You recognize that. Conversation is something that you participate in willingly. And so therefore, conversation has to be negotiated. You can't make me engage in conversation with you. You can't make me answer your questions. We do all have the right to remain silent. And here Jesus is invoking his right to remain silent. But he does make them the deal. You answer my question, and I will answer your question. And the question that he asks is masterful, not just because it's a question that they can't answer. Not only is it a question that they can't answer, but also it's a question that tells them the answer to their question without Jesus even saying it. So there's a lot going on here. This is multiple levels of genius. So the question that Jesus asks, notice it again there in verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, the baptism of John was not just the baptism of John, but it was the whole preaching message, the repentance message that went together with the baptism. And so John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the question is, all right, you guys, you're the religious leaders. You're the experts in the law of God. You studied the scriptures. You're sitting in Moses' chair. You tell me, was John a prophet from God or was this just a popular misconception that he pretended to be a prophet, but really it was just a movement from society, from man? Is this a merely a sociological event or is this actually a prophet from heaven? And so his question is directly related to their question because it's a matter of authority. Did John have the authority to speak the word of God? Did John have the authority to preach and tell the people of Israel, you must be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Where did this authority, where did John's authority come from? And so the way that they would answer that would be the same way that the Pharisees would answer Jesus. And in fact, the Pharisees had sent messengers to John. You can read about it in John chapter 1. And they asked him that question. Why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ and you're not the prophet? And where'd you get this authority? The authorities are always concerned when another authority rises up, especially when that authority is from heaven. Heaven's authority, God's authority. Now, you see that the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they get together to deliberate. How should we answer this? They're on the horns of the dilemma. They can't say that it's from heaven because if John was a true prophet from heaven, well, the people already know that the religious authorities, the religious leaders, didn't listen to John and didn't pay attention to him and this would paint them into a corner and make them look bad and they would lose face among the people. They're playing the political game. They're saying, we can't answer honestly because it wouldn't help us politically. 
They can't say it's from heaven. They can't recognize the truth because they've already rejected the truth. And they can't say it's from man because they were afraid of the people. Notice what it says there in verse 32. They were afraid of the people. The authorities, this is an important principle to recognize also about politics, the authorities rule by the will of the people. The authorities rule by the will of the people. Now, the authorities have tremendous authority, but if the authority pushes things too far, if they offend the people too much and lose the heart of the people, they lose their authority. All authority governs by the will of the people. And so here, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, they recognize if we state publicly that John the Baptist was not a prophet come from God, we will lose the heart of the people. That's what we believe, that's what we think, but we can't say it. And even the most authoritarian governments realize this. If you lose the will of the people, the government falls. This is what happened in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, after so many years of mismanagement, after the disaster of Chernobyl, after all of that, the people just said, this government is not functional. This government doesn't work. We want something different. And when the people as a whole want something different, they find a way to get something different. So here they're, they're playing the political game. Jesus has cornered them, and they have to come back with a lie. They answered, we do not know. Notice that Jesus never lies in this exchange. He just says, I refuse to answer the question. Now, in fact, he did answer the question, just in a very subtle way. The same authority that John the Baptist had is the same authority that I have. But I'm not going to tell you that I've got authority from heaven because you're going to reject it anyway, just like you rejected John the Baptist's authority. So what would be the point of telling you the answer to your question, which you're just going to try to use to get me charged on a charge of blasphemy in your court? So they've got their court where they're trying to get him to say something they can use against him in their court. But Jesus has the court of public opinion. And he says, well, if you want to play the game of trying to get people to say something that can be used against you, why don't you answer the question about where did John the Baptist's authority come from? It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. He said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. You need to be as wise as a serpent, as Jesus is here, and as innocent as a dove. He never tells a lie, but he also doesn't stupidly say things that can be used against him. So we should be like that as Christians. You know, the, the world wants to trap us. They want us to get us to say things that they can use against us. Don't be stupid. Don't say things that the world can use against you. But at the same time, don't lie. Don't be like these scribes. Don't be like these elders. Don't be like these chief priests who fear man. We don't fear man. We fear God. And we only say and do the things that are going to honor and glorify God, just like Jesus Christ feared no man. But at the same time, he was not stupid, and he didn't give his enemies opportunities when he didn't have to. They lie. They say, we don't know. But they really did have an opinion. They were just afraid to say it. Here's a point of application. The world still marvels at the authority of Christ today. The authority of Christ is vested in the Holy Scriptures. The authority of Christ is given to the apostles who have written for us the epistles, the gospels, the New Testament covenant by which we proclaim the truth of God to the world. And Christ is in the world today in his Holy Spirit. And so when a man of God 
goes on television and is interviewed about some divisive topic in our culture. And that man of God plainly states, the Bible says this. The hosts marvel. They say, how can you say that? Where do you get the right to be able to say that? I mean, so many different positions, so many different religions. It's the minority position. Most scientists don't believe that. Most sociologists don't believe it. Where do you get the right to say those things? From heaven. That's where our authority comes from. It doesn't come from man. It comes from heaven. The authority that Jesus Christ had to cast out demons. The authority that Jesus Christ had to open the eyes of the blind. The authority that Jesus Christ had to forgive sins. The authority that Jesus Christ had to raise the dead. What authority does he have? What do you think? This is not a question that needs to be answered. It's already been answered. There's no doubt where the authority of Jesus Christ comes from. So he doesn't have to answer this stupid question. But he does, in his own genius way. That moves us into chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where we see now Jesus Christ is going to speak to them. And he's going to speak to them in parables. God's authority was challenged, it was questioned there at the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12, the first 12 verses really go with this. That's why we put them together in one message, not just because we needed more verses and more things to talk about this morning, but they really do tie together with this idea of authority because in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we see God's authority rejected. That's the real problem here with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They have rejected God's authority. All right, so let's read chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent the, another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Let me stop there for now. We'll get the, the last three verses here in a moment. The vineyard. Well, just like the fig tree that we learned about in the previous chapter when Jesus cursed the fig tree, so also the vineyard was used in the Old Testament prophets to picture the people of Israel as God's possession. And what does God want from his fig tree? What does God want from his vineyard? He wants fruitfulness. That's what he's looking for. Now, in the parable of the fig tree, we've got the lack of fruitfulness. But here, in the parable of the tenants, it's not so much focused on the vineyard itself, but it's focused on the tenant farmers those who did not own the vineyard but who were leasing it from the landowner and how they were withholding the rightful dues to the landowner. 
So this is really a parable against the leadership of the people of Israel, not a parable against Israel herself. Now, this is different from what we have in the Old Testament because back in Isaiah chapter 5, where we have the closest parallel to what Jesus Christ is doing here, what we had was a fruitless vineyard. The problem was is that God planted good vines in his vineyard. He had prepared the fence around it. He dug the wine press. He built the tower. And instead of producing good grapes, the vineyard produced stinking things. I like that. It's a more literal translation than wild grapes, as we had it read. Stinking grapes, stinking things came out of the vineyard. And so God destroyed his vineyard because it was fruitless. Notice here in this parable, Jesus does not say that the vineyard is fruitless. He just says that those who are in charge of the vineyard are not giving proper respect and honor to the owner of the vineyard. We'll talk more about that if we have time. And that's why... It's directed against the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who are in this conflict of authority, not just with John the Baptist, not just with Jesus of Nazareth, but ultimately their conflict of authority is with God in heaven. That's the one that they are fighting against in order to try to take the vineyard from him. Now, in verses 2 through 9, you've got the tenants. I call them the treacherous tenants. And these tenants, the first thing they do is they abuse the messengers, the slaves, of the owner. You see that in verses 2 through 5. Many servants are sent. Some are killed, some are beaten, but none of them are given the fruit of the vineyard to take back to the owner. This alone is an act that is worthy of severe punishment. You do not mistreat the servant of an important man. To do so is to dishonor the man himself. How you treat someone's servant is how you're treating that person. That's why Jesus Christ said that if you receive just the smallest child in my name, you receive me. And when you receive me, you don't just receive me, but you receive my Father who is in heaven. And so the way we treat one another is indicative of how we are treating God himself. And here, these wicked tenants are mistreating, in the most abusive way, the official servants of the owner, the master of the vineyard. This is a great outrage and would be worthy of death in itself. And yet, that's not the end of it. That's not the extent. You see, this parable magnifies the grace of God. It magnifies the patience of God beyond what actually fits in the parable. That no man would do this. No man would send this many servants for so long when there was no sign that you were going to expect any different result. And no man would send his son to those who had already killed his servants. The grace of God is being magnified beyond what is even reasonable or what would be expected in the situation if it was just about a farm and the tenants. But it's not just about that and that's why it's a parable and everyone recognizes that last. And I like the way that Mark records it here for us. He had still one other, a beloved son. This beloved son, the last one that he had to send, it reminds us of how the gospel of Mark began, all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as Jesus Christ was baptized, the dove comes down out of heaven and the voice says, this is my beloved son. 
The same voice there on the mountaintop of transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so here, in the parable, Jesus Christ declares himself openly to be the son of God. Obviously, in this parable, the owner of the vineyard is God. Israel is his vine. Israel is his vineyard. And obviously, then, the tenant farmers are the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. But instead of Jesus proclaiming openly, I am the Son of the Most High, the Son of the Blessed, he does it in parable form. And he's being more open than he has been about this messianic secret, and yet he is not giving them what they would want where they would be able to use this against him in a court of law. What somebody says in a parable is not necessarily going to be able to be used in the same way that somebody says openly, right? So he does declare himself to be the Son of God, and this is also answering their question from the previous chapter. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority? The Father sent the Son. If you want to know about the authority, listen to the parable. But those tenants, they said to one another, this is key, this is the heir, the Son of God, the heir. This ties in with what we looked at last week about God's promises to David, the Davidic covenant. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. He is the mediatorial king that God is going to give, the rule and the authority and the power and the dominion, everything that belongs to God, he's giving it to the Davidic son, David's son. The beloved son, he's the heir of all things, the heir of the world. But those who are in charge of the world now, the sons of this age, who are in rebellion against God, what do they want to do? They want to kill the heir and take the inheritance for themselves. Do you remember Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is one of the most important psalms in the 150 psalms given to us in the Bible where the rulers of this world take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, let us tear off their cords that bind us. Let us kill the Son of God and take for ourselves the power and the dominion and the authority. This world, it's ours if we just get rid of God. You see, Israel is the world in microcosm. Don't think that Israel is the only one who wants to kill the Son and take the inheritance for themselves. The world is God's inheritance. And the world wants to get rid of the Son of God. They want the universe to be ownerless property so that they can claim it. And that's what the atheistic philosophers have done for them. They've given them the reason. As Nietzsche said, we've killed God. Ha! We've killed God. Now the universe is ours. It's unowned property. It's here by happy accident. And so we can do with it whatever we want. You see how the mind of the unbeliever works. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Yeah, it's pretty obvious what he's going to do, right? I don't think you could outrage someone more than by killing their son. If you want to see fury, if you want to see wrath, if you want to see vengeance, if you want to see retributive justice, kill a man or a woman's child. That's what they did. That's what we did. God will come. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Notice he doesn't say he's going to destroy the vineyard. He's going to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, when we come to the end of this story, the tenants are dead, the son is dead, and the vineyard is given to others. But there's something else that Jesus wants to include that doesn't fit into the story. It doesn't fit into the parable, but it's very important that we not end this pericope here, but that Jesus goes on to explain what is missing from the parable, but is of vital importance. And so he says in verse 10, Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now in verse 9, when it says the owner, let me make a mention here. I see in my notes I skipped over it. In verse 9, when it says the owner, the actual word there is the same word that we translate as Lord, the kurios. The owner is the Lord. He is the kurios. And so I love how that word can do double duty. It can point to the owner of a vineyard in the original language, but can also point to the Lord God, the Lord overall, at the same time to make it even more clear what Jesus is talking about. The parable of the tenants, it ends with a reference to Psalm 118. You see that there? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We read Psalm 118 in our scripture reading last week because Psalm 118 is also what was referenced when Jesus Christ was riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and the people of Israel were proclaiming, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, that that is the shout that comes from Psalm 118. But also contained in Psalm 118 is this verse, these verses, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the keystone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, the way he introduces this is really interesting. He's, again, Speaking to the elders, the scribes, the chief priests who have come to him, he's spoken this parable against them, which they figure out, they, they realize that he's speaking this parable against them, that they're the tenants. And he asks them, have you not read this scripture? Now, of course, they've read Psalm 118. They've sung it probably a hundred times. They've read it, they've studied it, they've taught it, but they never listened to it. They never searched it out. You see, what I want you to understand here is that people like the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they read their Bibles. Don't mistake that. They profess to believe the Bible, to respect the Bible, and there's a lot of Christians in the world today that are very similar. They'll read their Bible. They'll talk about the Bible. They'll do Bible studies, and they'll invite you to come be a part of their Bible study, but they don't listen to the Bible. They don't submit themselves to the Bible. The only things they see in the Bible are what they want to see, what bolsters their tradition, what bolsters their position, what bolsters their power, what gives them respect in the eyes of their community. That's all they see, that's all they talk about, and that's all they teach from God's Word. They are not under God's Word, allowing God's Word to rebuke them, allowing God's Word to challenge them, allowing God's Word to lead them into a knowledge of the truth. They're not searching for the truth when they come to the Bible. They're searching for, what can I get out of this? There's a big difference between searching for the truth and searching for what you can get out of it. Don't come to church with that mindset. What can I get out of this? You come here to search for the truth. The truth that's going to rebuke you. The truth that's going to correct you. The truth that's going to lead you. The truth that is going to challenge you. 
Instead of you challenging the truth, allow the truth to challenge you. And so Jesus, he is marveling that these religious men who know the Bible back and forth, it's like they've never even read it. Haven't you read Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23? They would be very insulted by the way Jesus asked this question. But then he says the verse. And they're like, yeah, what does that mean? I I remember that verse being there, but I always just kind of skipped over it. And that's not how you're supposed to read the Bible. You don't skip over the parts that you don't understand. You search it out. You study it. You seek for the answers. He who seeks finds. He who knocks, the door will be opened. When you come across something in Scripture that's puzzling you, that goes against your self-interest, that goes against your traditions, don't just gloss over it and say, eh, not important. It is important. You might be thinking wrongly. You might be believing wrongly. And you need to be corrected by God's word. And here Jesus uses God's word to correct the religious teachers. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, interestingly, if you go back and read rabbinic literature from that time period, their teachings were written down and preserved and things like the Mishnah. And if you go back and read it, Sometimes the experts in the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were called the builders. They actually used that word to describe themselves. And here you've got Psalm 118. And in God's providence, in God's foreknowledge, God had the psalmist write, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Marvelous, God's foresight. And not only does he include that verse, which is quoted many times, Psalm 118, verse 22, but Mark also includes the verse after it. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And that's what we get so much when we're reading through the Gospel of Mark. Unexpected. Not what we expected. More than we expected. Marvelous. Amazing. Astounding. That's a a big theme in Mark's Gospel. And when we come to see the Lord Jesus Christ and, and who He is and what He came to do, He blew people's minds and He's still blowing my mind today. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. So that reminds me then of Acts chapter 4. And we've got a few minutes, so I've got to do it. Acts chapter 4 in your Bibles. Turn there with me. You see the same thing happen in Acts chapter 4 that you have going on in Mark chapters 11 and 12. Jesus has been killed. He's been thrown out of the vineyard. But now his disciples are there in Jerusalem, in the temple, doing the miracles that Jesus did, preaching the things that Jesus preached. And so, what are the scribes and the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to be greatly annoyed, as it says in verse 2. We thought we'd put a stop to this. We thought this was going to be the end of it. We killed Jesus, and now we have to deal with his disciples. And it says they were greatly annoyed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is a big church. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set the apostles in the midst, they inquired, what's their question? By what power or by what name do you do this? The same question they had for Jesus. Then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people of Israel, elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, notice what Peter does here. He learned his lesson well, right? He was there with Jesus in the temple. Now the Spirit of Christ is in him. And he's going to say the same thing that Jesus said. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter, John, boldly testifying of Christ's resurrection before those who killed him. And so what are they going to do? Once again, the desire of the autocrat is checked by the will of the people. And they are not able to put Peter and John to death like they want to because they just did this amazing miracle. If we go and kill these guys who did this amazing miracle, that's going to look bad for us. We're going to lose standing. And if we lose too much standing, we're not going to have any place to stand. So they're like, all right, we can't kill them. We're just going to tell them not to do it and beat them. Right? Beat them, tell them don't do this anymore. Hopefully that will solve the problem. But notice the response. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. Notice that, because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Notice they said, you'll have to judge whether it's right for us to listen to God or to listen to you. God told us to speak, and so we're going to speak. But they do not repudiate the authority of the judges. Okay? They say, you guys are the authorities. You guys are in control of the police. You guys are in control of enforcing the law in Jerusalem. And so if you think it's wrong for us to do what God tells us to do, well, it's in your power to do whatever you want with us, but you will give an account to God. And that's the way we should be. You don't fear man. You don't fear the civil magistrate. You don't fear the authorities. You fear God, and you do what's right, and you submit yourself to the authorities as God says. Peter and John don't lead a revolution. They're not out among the people saying, we've got to get rid of Caiaphas. We've got to get rid of Annas. These guys are corrupt. They killed the Lord Christ. Revolution, revolution. No, there's none of that. We're just going to preach the word of God. We're going to do what God told us to do. And if you want to punish us for that, you've got the power. You can punish us. We'll suffer in the will of God. We'll glorify God. You'll look stupid. We'll look righteous. Do what you want. That's where Jesus was. That's where the disciples are. That's where we are. So we come back to Mark chapter 12. There's so much here, so much important principles to draw out. The Word of God is so rich. Now, when Jesus uses Psalm 118, 
a lot of people don't get it. They don't see it. Like I was reading one of my favorite commentaries on the Gospel of Mark by R.T. France, and, and he says that Jesus' use of Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, is a creative use of Scripture, which Jesus' hearers at the time could certainly not have been expected to work out for themselves, despite the rebuke implied in the opening question. So he knows that Jesus is expecting them to be able to work this out for themselves, but because he's blinded in his intellectual mind, he also sympathizes with the unbeliever in not being able to see what they should have seen. And this is, this is common. This is common. Okay? We as people, we live in a generation of unbelief, even among our Bible teachers. Okay? R.T. France is a good Bible teacher. I like him. But he's influenced by the unbelief around him. And he wants to give excuses to the unbelievers who don't see in Scripture what is in Scripture. Any person who wanted to know the truth, any person who was a righteous person and sought after the truth should have found it in Psalm 118 and a host of other Scriptures. And Jesus was among us always marveling at our unbelief. It's like we hadn't even read the Bible. He was the only man who saw it. And it's not because... We couldn't be expected to work it out for themselves. You know what Jesus told his disciples after he was resurrected? Oh, you foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the Scripture says. And the disciples were good men. They were believers. They were following Christ. They left everything to follow Christ. And yet they were foolish. They were slow of heart to believe. They didn't read the Bible the way it should have been read because they had the same blindness, they had the same cloud covering their eyes that was covering the eyes of everyone else in their generation. And it's the same way today. How do you read the Bible? Do you read it like Jesus? Or do you read it like everyone else? It's there. This is not a creative use of Scripture. This is a proper use of Scripture. And Jesus implied that people should have seen it, and he didn't imply wrongly. He's right. They should have seen it. I get worked up about this. <sighs> Jesus said that the vineyard is going to be taken away from the tenants and given to others. Who are the others? Well, that's why I've got Matthew chapter 19, verse 28 here. I think this answers the question, who are the others that Jesus is taking the vineyard away from and giving it to? Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, that's the twelve, will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's not the temple authorities. It's not the chief priests. It's not the scribes. It's not the Sadducees. Certainly not the Sadducees. And it's not the Pharisees who are going to be entrusted with God's kingdom. It's the twelve. And everyone who follows in the teaching of the twelve. And that includes us. The church of Jesus Christ is founded on the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. We're all being built up into this spiritual house. Jews and Gentiles together in the new covenant. And we will inherit the kingdom of God. God has destined us for it. He's prepared us for it. Rabbinic Judaism is a dead end. You can accuse me of being anti-Semitic for saying that, but Jesus was a Jew, you know. The apostles were Jews. And they were the Jews to whom God was going to entrust the new covenant and the kingdom of God, not the old, sinful, fleshly leadership in Jerusalem. 
Rabbinic Judaism has nothing. The apostles of Jesus Christ have it all. Now, this parable hits home. They know that he's talking about them. They want to kill him. And what's the outcome there at the end in verse 12? They were seeking to arrest him. But for the second time, we are told, they feared the people. What does human authority fear? It fears the people. What do they do? They try to please the people. They try to snow the people. They try to buy the people. They try to influence the people. That's not our tactic. That's not our game. We don't fear man. We don't please man. We are God-fearers, God-pleasers. We have one person that we listen to. One person that we take our instructions and our orders from. I'm not out taking polls to say, well, what do you think church should be like? I go to God and I ask him, God, what do you think church should be like? That's what I'm going to try to do. That brings us to, I think, the greatest thought that really dawned on me as I was thinking about it this week. And maybe it was France that helped me come to this. I think he had a a great thought here. One of the guys did. And notice that they perceived that he told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Now, they left him and went away in order to deliberate as to how can we get him? How can we trap him? How can we arrest him? How can we put him to death? They go out, listen to this, they go out determined to fulfill the prediction that Jesus Christ has just given them in the parable. You're going to kill the son. And they go out and they're planning, how do we kill the son? Because they are going to go out and fulfill the prediction of their own doom because they do not see how it is possible that after killing the son that he should rise again. They did not expect the resurrection. The disciples didn't expect the resurrection, much less the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities. So people, in wanting to take this earth for themselves... They fulfill God's prediction about their own sinful, usurpatious heart. And they fulfilled the prediction of their own doom that would lead to their own destruction, their own death, and to Christ's victory because they had no idea how Christ could become the cornerstone after being crucified. And so, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible... Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. This is your vineyard and by your will it exists and has been created. It belongs to God. He gives it to his son, Jesus Christ. And if you will not fight against Christ, if you'll repent of fighting against Christ and welcome his pardon and join his team, you can have the inheritance with him. You don't have to fight God for the inheritance. He's going to give it to you. He wants you to sit down on his throne with him. He invites those who murdered him to be his brother in the kingdom. That's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God. That's our message. How much better this message than any other thing that could ever be thought of or dreamt or preached. This is the truth of God. And I'm glad that we're here to hear it. Let's pray. Father, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is your doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We thank you, Lord God, 
that you have sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion and the power forever and ever. And we cry out with the same heart of faith that the disciples had in the first century, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, and receive your kingdom. Sit on David's throne, reign in Jerusalem, rule over all the nations, disband the council of the nations, destroy the wicked who are sitting on their thrones today, plotting against you and persecuting your children all around the world, and take the rule and the authority and the kingdom forever. Maranatha. That's what we want. That's what we ask you for. And we know and believe that we have it. Amen.